Hello, science enthusiasts. My name is Jason Zakowski, and your host. I'm a high school chemistry teacher, but you, you probably know our dog, Bunsen Burner. He's the Twitter science dog. This show takes what's best about Bunsen's account, the science and empathy found there, and spins it into podcast form. Every week, you'll learn some new science in our science news section. We'll also talk about some really interesting dog or pet science. Every week, there's an amazing expert that is interviewed, and we get to learn so much from them. And we end the podcast with stories and trivia. This is The Science Podcast. Hey guys, how's it going? Another week, another week, and shut down. Hey, one of the things I've heard is less people are listening to podcasts now because there's no commute. People are staying at home to work. If you're listening to this podcast, thanks thanks so much for not being part of that statistic. We're all fine. We're all healthy. Alberta is still shut down. School probably won't be back on. I know the big province in Canada, Ontario, has extended school shutdown until the end of May. I think they're just going to pretty much, as we roll into May, I think there's going to be an announcement that school is going to be shut down. On the weather front, man, the great melt has occurred. All of the snow is almost gone. That happened so fast. We went from snow everywhere, and in about a week and a half, there's virtually no snow anywhere in Alberta, Um, and it's so muddy. For those of you with a big fluffy dog, this is the worst time ever to have a big fluffy dog is mud season because Bunsen is so muddy. All right, what do we got on the podcast this week? We're going to talk about volcanoes in science news. In dog science, we're going to talk about sleeping dogs. And our expert guest is Dr. Meredith Palmer, who studies the fear response of prey animals to predators in the savannas of Africa. So cool. Hey, uh, Bunsen, what happened to the overconfident lion tamer? He was consumed by his own pride. (coughs) Okay, on with the show. Because there's no time like science time. This week in science news, we're going to talk about volcanoes. And this science article is all about the eruptions that were happening in 2018 on the Hawaiian island of Kona, the Kilauea volcanic system. In 2017, we actually took a family vacation to Kona for a week. And we were there in the summer. Um, You know, we're so landlocked. I've said this before. We're very landlocked in Alberta. And, and the ocean has such a calling to me, like, oh man, I could snorkel and swim in the ocean for hours. And I know not everybody in, not everybody loves the ocean as much as I do in my family. So, but Chris loves Hawaii um, and the boys have been once before. So we took a second trip to Hawaii in 2017 and we were on Kona and I picked Kona because I wanted to see volcanoes. I have never seen an active volcano in my life before. There's not a lot of volcanic activity in Canada. I'll tell you that. (laughs) We uh, took a day trip to the, what was it called? Like the Volcano uh, National Park on the east side of Kona. And it was amazing. It was unbelievably cool because it was like nothing I'd ever seen before in my life. The kids were enthralled. Chris was mesmerized. We walked through lava tubes and we felt the hot air and smelt the sulfur of the fissures beneath us. And then at night we watched Kilauea um, and we didn't unfortunately get to see any lava erupt, but we saw the glow from the observation deck. And the irony is that Had I waited one more year to go, 
we would have been there during the crazy eruptions that were happening everywhere on uh, around that whole system. <laughs> so this article is talking about that volcanic activity. And it's really cool because it, the, the article and the research has caused a big debate. Two volcanologists, uh, did I say that right? Volcanoologists or volcanologists? It sounds like you're a Vulcan like Spock. Anyways, they have a theory that the, the crazy volcanic activity that occurred uh, on Kilauea was because of rainfall. And another team of scientists don't necessarily agree with that. So it's a big debate right now. So if you don't remember this crazy volcanic activity, it started in 2018 in May and went for three or four months. And it produced as much lava as about 15 years of lava in just that short amount of time. Um, the pictures were crazy. I was showing videos to my kids at the start of every day. They, we were just studying. We were following this like crazy. And it was so cool because it coincided when I was teaching geology in one of my science classes. So this study came out on April 22nd in Nature. And these volcanologists, they say it was because of rainfall. So how does rainfall make a volcano erupt? How, how can you, how is that even possible? So this is what they theorize. What happens is if you have constant rain and there's so much of it, the rain will seep deep under the ground and create pressure within rocks. Rocks actually swell um, due to rain. Like the, there's some rocks that absorb water and that creates a whole bunch of pressure underneath the ground and it could actually fracture it. So crack, snap. And those cracks are like basically a highway system for lava to escape. And Jamie Farouk-Harson, the volcanologist that's part of the study, says that's what led to the eruptions. And they have precipitation data to kind of back up their findings. That it was crazy wet and crazy rainy leading up to the volcanic eruptions. They ran simulations to show that as the pressure built up underneath the ground, there was a greater likelihood of these fissures occurring and thus increased volcanic activity. They also looked back in history and found that throughout history, when there was crazy wet periods, there was also more volcanic activity. The big problem with this study is it contradicts the observations by the geological surveys in Hawaii itself. That group showed that it was, well, what they think is there was a lot of pressure buildup. So the volcanic activity fell before May. It went to a very, very low amount of output. The low volcanic activity created a buildup, like a plug, almost like you're kinking a garden hose. And then all of a sudden that kink kind of opened up and the volcanic activity occurred. They've been able to use pressure data at the base of the volcano is Pu'ua and they followed that many kilometers back and it seems to hold up. They also state that if you go back in time and you look at the different wet periods, it could just be a coincidence. Now, what's really cool is that the idea that this rain could cause weakness and then these cracks to form is definitely plausible. In fact, if you put the two theories together, it could also explain volcanic activity. So that's what another um, volcanic meteorologist said is that, you know, there's merit to both of these ideas. There's data to show that the pressure built up under the ground due to kind of this stoppage of volcanic activity. And it's very plausible that the rain caused underground pressure to build up. So 
the two teams are fighting it out. I just thought that was really cool. And it was just because this article was brand new um, this month. Now, I don't know how many people listening have seen volcanoes erupt. I'm, I would still love to see that in my life because it's just such an incredible thing that you see on TV. And it's definitely not something we have in Canada. I know there's some people... <laughs> that I've talked to who live in uh, Costa Rica and they have like live volcanoes down there and they're like, oh, it does no big deal. It's kind of like us with snow because in pe- the the folks I talked to in Costa Rica have never seen snow before. So when they see snow, they probably would be just like me if I saw a volcanic activity. <laughs> Anyways, that's science news for this week. This week in dog science, we're going to be talking about dog sleep. I bet you some of you have some funny dog sleeping stories. With Bunsen, he sometimes has uh, sleep dreams. He sleeps a lot. <laughs> he So he's he's more often asleep than he is awake. He's, he's a pretty big couch potato. Anyways, he has sleep dreams where he twitches and he moves a little bit. But then sometimes he like starts to bark or whimper in his sleep. And... Uh, I don't like when he does that. It makes me feel sad for him and I want to wake him up and make sure he's okay. I'm pretty sure a lot of pet owners out there do the same thing. Your dog is like crying and you're like, wake up, wake up, it's okay. When really, maybe we shouldn't be doing that. So the study we're going to look at took a look at how dog brains work while they sleep and applied that to learning new tricks, retention, information. The study used EEG machines or electroencephalography, which basically measures the electrical activity in your brain. And similar to humans, dog brains showed bursts of activity uh, during non-rapid eye movement. This is called a sleep spindle. I'd never heard that before until I like did a deep dive into the study. Researchers have of course done this with other animals like rats, but dogs are closer on the evolutionary pathway to us than rats are. Plus, dog brains have um, disorders that are very, very similar in how they affect the dog brain to how disorders affect the human brain, like epilepsy. They took a look at these sleep spindles, which are about, like if you want to get in the nitty gritty of it, they're very quick. They last a very short amount of time and they have a frequency between 12 to 14 hertz. And they occur in the thalamus, That's part of your forebrain, um, and that's like where you retain information. It's your sophisticated processing area of the brain. One of the things they theorize what happens to your brain during these sleep spindles is it closes your brain to anything else. So you're, you're not getting anything jumbled around. Basically where they think memory consolidation occurs. There's not a lot known about this in dogs, so that's what this why this study was really, really cool. They asked 15 dog owners to bring their dogs three separate times, and the dogs were a bunch of different breeds, right? There was it was a mix. It's always tough with it's always tough with dogs uh, to get like a uniform sample size, but you they they had everything from schnauzers to retrievers. Before anything, they took the EEG of the dog's brain to get a baseline, right? So they could compare stuff to. Then they were randomly assigned some commands to practice. And uh, what's funny is this is a Hungarian study. <laughs> so these dogs knew the command in Hungarian, but they wanted to get the dog to learn to do the command in English, like sit 
or lie down. They split the study into a group that did, they did Hungarian to English and then English to Hungarian. So they just wanted to randomize the study that way. So they knew the term in Hungarian and they were learning something in English. Um, and then there were some dogs that knew some words in English, but not in Hungarian. So they split the study to make sure it wasn't just a language thing. After the study, the dogs got a chance to sleep. They took a look at their brains to see how many sleep spindles the different dogs had and then compared it to how easily the dog was able to learn commands. The dogs learning English words from a Hungarian command then proceeded to practice their skills. Then the researchers tried to link that new, uh, the retention there to more sleep spindles. So they were looking at sleep spindles in two different areas. Sleep spindles while the dogs were asleep in which dogs did the best learning and then sleep spindles among the dogs repracticing the new skill. The sleep spindles that they found during all this time looked very similar to humans. There were more sleep spindles in female dogs, but that also tracks with humans. Um, there's more sleep spindles in, in uh, females for humans and it probably has something to do with hormones. The dogs who had way more of these like these slivers of time where that frequency was recorded during their snooze were better learners than those without the sleep spindles. So that also tracks with humans, that humans that have more sleep spindles do better job at learning. How does this track with humans? Well, there's some disorders of the human brain and during sleep where the sleep spindles are all messed up. People with schizophrenia have very low amounts of sleep spindles. Also, you could look at people with ADHD and you know there's some dogs that are diagnosed with a type of dog ADHD and they also have atypical sleep spindles so it's really cool that what tracks in humans tracks in, in dogs now the end result of this study wasn't to provide you know some kind of like great process but it was just a learning activity to, to show that dogs and humans when we sleep are really similar so maybe when we're asleep and we're having a nightmare Bunsen wants to wake us up he's like no no it's okay he probably doesn't do that because he's asleep already <laughs> And the doggos retaining more information in their doggo brain after their doggo sleep. That's dog science for this week. Hey guys, before we get to the interview section, I thought I'd tell you a little bit about how the podcast is made possible. It's made possible with listeners just like you through our Patreon page. The podcast is always going to be free for you to download and listen to and have fun with us. But the way that we make the show go and, and pay for the fees and and everything else that goes with running one is through the donations per month on our Patreon page. If you're interested, head over there to patreon.com backslash Bunsen Burner. There's a link in the show notes and there's four tiers of support. Why else might you want to join the Patreon page? Uh, that's for the cool perks that we've got for you there. Each tier has some really cool perks with the top tiers getting a shout out in the podcast and playtime with Bunsen on our Furbo. On top of that, we'll send you some swag from time to time and postcards a couple times a year. If you want to support us, we'd so appreciate it. Okay, thanks. Back to the show. On the Science Podcast, in the Ask an Expert section, I am thrilled to have Dr. Meredith Palmer, who is a behavior ecologist from Princeton University. How are you doing today, Meredith? Uh, doing really good. Yep. Um, still sane and healthy, which I think is the important things right now. 
Right. And because I bank interviews, this probably won't air for uh, three or four weeks. And you're, you're, you said you're, uh, you're kind of trapped in Sweden right now. Yeah, with the, all the border closures that are going on um, because of COVID at the moment, I managed to get myself stuck <laughs> in the EU. Um, but there's worse places to be, that's for sure. Let's hope for the better. <laughs> We're living in a piece of history right now. That is true. Well, let's talk about something that uh, that's, that's, that's really uplifting and exciting, and that's your education and your research and what you do. Can you tell everybody what kind of your educational journey um, and what your job is as a behavioral ecologist? Yeah, 100%. Um, so essentially, like for a big picture, a behavioral ecologist, I study animals. I study how different species interact. I study how those interactions impact uh, the environment that animals live in. And I sort of, I guess I've always wanted to be a biologist. I think it started when I was a kid, you know, reading stories about Jane Goodall and, and George Schaller and these people who went off on exciting adventures to far off places. And, you know, they go live in the wilderness and they develop this amazing insight into the lives of animals. And I found that, you know, so inspiring as a kid reading these stories about animals and people that worked with them. Um, I think I was a bit of a nerd. Uh, my parents told me I really loved encyclopedias <laughs> as a kid. Like apparently I, you know, knew more facts about animals than the average five-year-old because I was always buried in a book. Um, and then, you know, growing older, getting into high school, definitely reading more science-y books. So inspired by books. Um, there's some amazing authors out there. You know, your your David Quammens and your Stephen Goulds and your, your Carl Zimmers, these people who spin these like really fascinating stories about research and why it's important. And that, that got me hooked, you know, like I got hooked immediately from the start and never really wanted to do anything else. Um, so, you know, as a kid, I started doing a lot of citizen science, you know, helping out with people's field projects. There's so many opportunities out there to go out and, and help out scientists and get a chance to figure out firsthand what what it means to be a scientist. And I was super lucky to be able to do some of that stuff. Went to, went to college, did my undergraduate. I got a bachelor's degree in zoology um, from a small liberal arts college. I didn't go straight into graduate school. I think a lot of people think that you go, like, if you want to be a scientist, you have to go, like, college, master's, PhD. Like, it's this progression that's very linear. And for me, it, it really wasn't. Um, so I, I did my bachelor's and then I took two years off and I spent that time working as a field assistant. So I got to help out a bunch of different scientists working on all of these different projects around the world, uh, like very different things too. Um, I had one job where I caught guppies, which are a kind of fish. I did that in the Caribbean. I got to oh, study cool. It, that was amazing. Um, like working in <laughs> tropical rainforest is something else. But then, like I also studied mice in Africa. I caught snakes in the South Pacific, you know. And that's not only like not only a bunch of adventure, which is you know what I was interested in as well, but a lot of practical, hands-on learning about the process of science, like being out there doing it, meeting all of these researchers. What are they interested in? How do they think? How do they do research? And I think that's really been hugely beneficial for me when I did go back to graduate school um, and in the kinds of work that I do now as a, as a scientist. Um, so, yeah, so like took some time off. And then uh, one of the things I think that that taking this time off and experiencing all of this different 
kinds of ecology helped me figure out is what I was really interested in. Because being an ecologist, like, again, you can study anything from guppies to mice. You can study anything from from insects to elephants. There's a whole bunch of different organisms out there. There's so many questions out there. One of the important things you have to keep in mind if you decide to go to graduate school is, is graduate school is really, really hard. And you have to be so dedicated and passionate about the questions that you're trying to answer. Mm-hmm. Um, right? Like, it's a lot of school. It's a lot of work. And so doing all of this science really gave me a chance to figure out like, oh, okay, I'm not super interested in this. You know, this is more interesting to me. Like, I really don't want to work in a tropical rainforest. I'd rather work, you know, somewhere else. Um, <laughs> was it was it the bugs or? <laughs> oh, rainforest or... so wet. They're so Oh, damp. so wet, yeah. And so like <laughs> foot rot, like everything falls apart. You know, you're always moist. Uh, your skin gets all... You're, listeners probably don't want to hear about all the skin lesions that you get, but like, oh, it's very, it's very moist. Um, so I did that. And then I was tired of being moist. My high school students are going to love uh, that you keep using the word moist because that is the word that, that, that it's everybody the hates. Word. <laughs> it's the worst word. When you say that, it's just like, okay, I get it. Like everything is just damp all everything. the time. If I had to pick one word to describe doing work in a tropical rainforest, it would be moist. Um, <laughs> but, you know, like beautiful, like wonderful experiences, incredible yeah. biodiversity out there. Um, but I did, I did that for a couple of years and I was like, okay, we're going to find something a little bit, a little bit drier <laughs> moving forward. <laughs> so yeah, so like I became interested in deserts and savannas. I realized that I was really interested in species interactions. And so Um, looking at different graduate schools, I ended up going with a lab that did work in Serengeti National Park in Tanzania. Oh my Um, goodness. Which is like, Serengeti is the like Lion King Africa, right? It's the rolling plains, it's the open savannas, it's those majestic rocks, it's all of the wildlife everywhere. Um, And I was really interested in joining the lab that I did because they had um, some really fantastic long-term data Uh, in some cases, like going back for decades, on the dynamics of all of these different kinds of wildlife species in Serengeti. Um, So they had, I worked with a team that ran the Serengeti Lion Project. Mm -hmm. So these guys have been studying lions in Serengeti Park since the 1960s. Um, Yeah, no, it's, you know, it's incredible. They've had collars on dozens of lions We've been following these lions around for decades. We know everything about them. You know, we know where they go. We know what they do. We've been following, you know, studying their behavior and their demography for so long. Um, And another thing that this lab had just done that I was super interested in is that they just set up this massive, large-scale camera trapping initiative. Uh, So camera traps are these, like, remote cameras. You set them up in the field, and if something walks in front of it, it takes a picture, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so this lab deployed 200 camera traps all over the Serengeti Park. Oh my goodness. That's so cool. It's so, it, no, it was a fascinating, um, because it gives us the secret, the secret look into like how animals live their lives, <laughs> right? Like animals don't know the cameras there. So they just go around doing the things that they do. Um, and with 200 cameras, we're constantly collecting, you know, such high resolution information, on where animals are and how many of them there are and what they're doing for, you know, everything, like anything that can trigger a camera trap, we get data on it. So entire wildlife communities 
And it was really, you know, the power, the combination of these two projects, the lion monitoring to allow me to study predators and the camera traps, which allowed me to look into um, these wildlife communities. And I could start answering questions about how predators and prey interact. And so that's what I focus on now is trying to understand predator-prey relationships and the impacts that those relationships have uh, for larger ecological communities. Wow, that is okay. So just for people at home, when you take data on lions, you're not like hiding under some like grass camouflage. Um, <laughs> well, you're not traipsing about with a camera or are you? Um, or is that kind of unsafe? <laughs> well, so the lion monitoring, the lions, again, we had um, we had radio collars on the lions. So lions oh, okay. live in, in prides, right? And we would collar yep. one lion from every pride. Um, so we did not use GPS collars. So there's fancy collars now where the collar itself connects with satellites and it'll give you a ping, you know, every couple of hours. This is where your lion is. That's not the kind of, you know, we didn't use that kind of technology. We use what are called VHF collars. And so those are the ones, if you've ever seen pictures of researchers out there with those radio antennas listening yep. for callers. Yep, they have those in, yeah, they have those on bears in um, yeah. in Banff. Yeah. So that's that's what the um, that's the kind of tracking we did is we weren't getting pinged by these callers. We had to go out with our radio antennas, listening for the lion callers, driving around the Serengeti, trying to find oh, wow. these lions. Uh, and then when we found the lions, we would sit in the car where it was safe. Like we were never out there, <laughs> you know, putting ourselves at danger. We weren't asking to get eaten. Um, but oh we goodness. would we would sit there with the lions and take all of the data, record all of the data that we needed to record about that particular pride of lions, and then go and try and find the next pride. And um, I got to take part in that, you know, that was just a, such an amazing field experience because you really get a feel for what it's like being there on the ground in the Serengeti. Like you understand where the lions go and where they're sleeping and where they're hunting and how they, how they think, how they use a landscape. And that gives you a lot of insight into that, um, the predator's point of view, so to speak. That's so cool. So the, the radio callers helped you get pinpoint data on a pride, but those, the, the, uh, what were the other cameras called? The, the ones that just get turned on by movement? Yeah. So um, then the, the camera traps, those camera traps. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They would give you like a, like a webcam version of the entire area they were placed in. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so if that's I'm, so cool. you know, if I'm interested in lions eat a lot of stuff, right? Uh, oh so lions as predators eat a lot of different kinds of animals as prey. And we can't put a radio collar on, you know, every single wildebeest, zebra, impala, <laughs> heart, you know, topi, hartebeest in the Serengeti. So the camera traps allowed us to sample that broader prey community. Um, and then we had the collars on the predators. That's so cool. So with your research, one of the things I'm really interested to ask you about with predator prey is you, one of the things you talked about like on your webpage and your research, and hopefully I'm on the right track, is something called anti-predator decision-making. Mm -hmm. can, can you explain that to everybody? That sounds really interesting. Yeah. Um, to like contextualize that, um, predators can impact prey populations in two different ways. In one way that's very intuitive and one way that's maybe not as intuitive. And the intuitive way is that predators eat prey, right? <laughs> like uh, predators consume <laughs> prey. If you're a prey and you get eaten, you know, that's kind of a bummer. 
Um, and if predators, <laughs> right? Just, uh, a little, just a little bit. It's kind of sad. It's a bad day. Um, so predators, they eat prey, and then maybe there's less of those prey animals around eating plants. So you can get cascading effects of predators. Um, so maybe, you know, sometimes having predators around is really beneficial for plant communities. And you can see when predators are removed from certain ecosystems, plant communities can really suffer because all of a sudden there's a ton more herbivores chowing down on those plants. Um, so that's one way that predators can affect prey is consumptively. And then the other way that predators can impact prey is by scaring them. So if, you know, if you're a deer, say, only one deer in your herd of deer might get eaten by a wolf. But every single deer in your herd is afraid of being eaten by wolves, right? Mm -hmm. And this changes, you know, it changes everyone's, again, if you're a deer, it changes all of the prey animals, your behavior and your physiology in ways that can it would, be... it would change my behavior if like one person in my classroom got ate every month by a wolf. <laughs> I think I think everybody would be pretty terrified of wolves. Right? <laughs> Sorry. And then, like, no, but exactly. <laughs> and like, and what do you do then? Um, like you're gonna oh, be yeah. I, we're to... deer. <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna be on the lookout for wolves. You you know, are maybe oh, yeah. gonna join like a big group of teachers. You'll cut, walk around together, safety in numbers. Maybe you won't go to the areas where you've seen wolves eating people <laughs> or deer. Oh my god! Right? So you can you can yeah you can avoid where areas where predators are. You can be constantly vigilant, always on the lookout for predators. You can do different things to try and mitigate that predation risk. Um, but this has consequences. Like there's no free lunch, right? Um, so maybe if you're always avoiding areas where there are wolves or lions, you're maybe not getting all of the resources. Like maybe that area where the wolves is, is where all the really good food is. Or maybe you're always so busy watching out for predators that you're not eating as much food or missing opportunities to like find some mates. Um, so your physical condition isn't as great. You're more likely to die from starvation or from other causes you're not as likely to have as many babies. And so hmm. work done in smaller systems, like experimental work with stuff like grasshoppers and spiders, suggests that these, these fear effects, these non-consumptive effects of predation, the way that predators change prey behavior can actually impact prey populations even more so than those consumptive effects of those you know wolves snacking on one deer every month. So it's it's fear has this potential to be a hugely powerful force shaping wildlife communities. Um, I've never even thought about that before. No one does. I, but it makes, it makes total sense. Like if you live, if you're constantly in stress that you're going to get eight, mm -hmm. then some things in your, some day, some things in your daily routine kind of aren't as important anymore. Like if I woke up every morning thinking I was going to get eaten, I might not brush my teeth a couple times a day. You know, like there's some things you just aren't as important for you. And, and then that decreases your health. That's all of so those cool. little things add up, you know, like you're not immediately dying because you got, eaten, no, you know, yeah. by a lion. But it's the, yeah, it's like they're not brushing your teeth. You're not eating as much. You're not as fit. More stress hormones in your system. Like that'll do a number on you. Um, so all of those little things add up. And it seems to mean that fear is really important. Um, but the thing that I 
and interested in like the reason I work it with lions and wolves instead of with you know spiders and grasshoppers is that we it's like really easy to study what we call non-consumptive or fear effects of predators in these small scale systems so we know a lot we know a lot mm-hmm. about say like how spiders scare grasshoppers because what scientists do is they manipulate that system you can take you can take some glue and you can glue the spider's mouths closed like people do oh this goodness. so that you know so that you've isolated the different pathways right the spider eating grasshopper pathway and the spider scaring grasshopper pathway because all of a sudden okay. your spider can't eat um but i can't i can't go out into the field with some elmer's glue and like glue a lion's mouth closed right um there'd be some ethical concerns there probably a couple ethical concerns (laughs) there and because it's so difficult to study fear effects and again the behaviors that prey animals use to avoid predators these anti-predator behaviors it's really hard to study that in these systems with these bigger animals that are moving, you know, interacting across the larger spatial and temporal scales. So it's a bit of a challenge to study these questions, um, which is what I think is is really, really interesting, you know, tackling this question in, some, in a place like the Serengeti Park. And again, you know, like I was saying before, we do a lot of stuff with, with GPS collars and camera trap data. And what that really allows us to do is study how prey animals avoid predators proactively. So how they keep from running into predators in the first place, how they change their use of a landscape in ways so that they're not running into predators, right? Hmm. Like um, they're almost ta- making tactical decisions probably. Oh, like everything is a trade-off. It's, you know, like, do I go to this really tasty patch of grass where lions hang out or do I go to this patch of like not super tasty shrubs um but i'm safer from lions like everything is a decision right Mm. so that's one thing you can do is just to try and avoid running into predators it's not perfect right like predators will find you eventually and so the other set of anti-predator behaviors that i'm interested in studying is the reactive responses to a predator encounter so what do you do when you run into a wolf like how do you escape from that situation and like this is the fun part of my work start to cry i would start to cry <laughs> just curl up in a ball and make peace with your god uh, <laughs> yeah that's one it's one animal in canada i haven't uh we haven't been attacked by yet um, <laughs> ran into a got chased by a badger and a we badger. Come, yeah like north american badgers not not like the friendly european badgers that look like they're going to invite you for tea mm-hmm. these are like the scary look like they're on meth badgers like these are the worst yeah bunsen and i got chased by one last summer so and yeah i know there's there's probably not wolves where we live but i know there's coyotes out there but yeah uh uh, sorry i didn't mean to derail you i ran in if i ran into a wolf i think i'd be more scared of running into a wolf than a bear to be honest with you because the wolf is there to get you most most likely Mm -hmm. well that i mean like you've hit on something actually very important is how do prey animals respond to different kinds of predators right that's a question that i'm Mm. also interested in studying um but to to get at that question, to study that question in the wild, I get to play the lion. I get to play the wolf and go out and simulate all of the scary things about predators. Uh, but, like as a researcher, I'm not going to eat you. Oh, this is 
so much fun. Um, and there's a, there's a bunch of different ways that we've done this. So I've done some work in North America studying, studying wolves, studying wolves that are recolonizing um, in the States. And I spent a summer last year spraying wolf pee on everything to make deer think that there were still wolves around. Um, <laughs> I smelled. I've never smelled worse in my oh. entire life. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, so, like, scent is a way that you can simulate the presence of a predator without a predator being there. I've also worked with life-size predator models, so like cardboard cutouts <laughs> on wheels, and oh I've goodness. trundled, you know, trundled these through the savanna, you know, dragging a hyena cutout towards a herd of unsuspecting antelope to make them think that they were, you know, being attacked, and then recording how they respond. Um, and then the third thing we do is we do a ton of stuff with predator sounds. So one of the projects that I'm working on right now super fun we have these i get to play with all kinds of really cool technology um, and at the moment i have these camera traps so again these remote cameras that get triggered to take photos when animals walk in front of them but these camera traps i've modified them so that when an animal walks in front of it the camera trap plays a predator noise like a lion snarl or a, a cheetah squeak um, and then it video records the animal's response to that sound. So you're a wildebeest <laughs> walking through the bush. You don't know the camera's there, but you accidentally trigger it. And then you hear a, a leopard snarl and my camera records what you do. Um, and again, like... That would be fascinating. Oh, it's such an amazing... I, I love it because it really gives you this amazing look into how animals live their lives, right? Um hmm. You, you see these natural responses of animals in their natural environments to things they think are real threats. Um, and yeah, it's, it's super neat. And between this, the camera trapping and the predator collars and all of these weird experiments with, with pee and sounds, <laughs> we, it allows us to look, you know, like are animals performing different behaviors? They have different responses to different kinds of predators, like wolves versus bears, predators with different traits. So maybe... Do they respond differently to predators that hunt in different ways? We look at how prey trade off, like I've been talking about avoiding predators with getting food or other resources. And it really allows us to get this picture of how strongly predators are shaping the communities, the wildlife communities that they live in via these, these consumptive and non-consumptive pathways. So that this probably leads me into my next question. Like all of this data is mind-bogglingly fascinating like so cool but this all of this information has to be funneling to to something like beyond just answering questions and that is the health of the ecosystem is, is that correct like this is all part of ecology yeah i mean like in the kind of ecology that i study that i'm interested in we are trying to figure out how these communities fit together how species interact with each other how they interact with their environment how you know the repercussions of changing these communities is something that's very pertinent right now so mm. i do a lot of my work has conservation implications um a lot of animals are going extinct right now and essentially you're pulling you're pulling pieces out of that puzzle you're changing those interaction webs between species how does that affect the community or some of the amazing work that i get to do some of the you know, it's always a breath of fresh air to hear like a positive conservation story because um, mm -hmm. I feel like most of our world is on fire right now. But 
I'm very fortunate to do a lot of work on projects where we're trying to restore predators to these communities um, to try and take these ecosystems that have maybe become degraded because they've lost different key players and see if we can put back those key players and, and maybe restore those ecosystems back to how they used to be. Right. So for people, for people who maybe haven't, uh, it's been a while since they've taken a high school biology class. Mm-hmm. If you, I have an idea, um, but maybe you can explain it better than definitely I could. Why would you put an apex predator, like some dangerous animal that's going to eat other animals back into an ecosystem? How does that, why is that a good thing? I mentioned a little bit before about predators <laughs> shaping prey. They shape prey demography. So like how many prey animals there are, they shape prey behavior. They shape how many prey there are and how those prey animals interact with the landscape. So that determines, you know, a lot of these prey animals are herbivores. They're eating different kinds of plants. They're trampling the soils. They're redistributing nutrients through their, through their pee and poo, uh, or by, <laughs> or, you know, or by dying and decomposing. So if predators affect prey, you know, how many there are, where are they on the landscape, what they're doing to the landscape, this impacts plant communities, it impacts soil communities. I mean, it's actually mind boggling because studies have shown that, you know, these, these cascading trickle down effects of predators, it can be, you know, ultimately predators can end up affecting bees, birds, disease spread, fire regimes, carbon cycling, water dynamics, all of these diverse and important ecosystem processes. And if you take predators away as predators go extinct, and these apex carnivores are the first animals to go extinct in areas that are highly impacted. Yeah, they require, you know, so much space and, and very specific resources. They're at the top of the food chain. They also, you know, there's a lot of human wildlife conflict. Like we don't like big predators, so we persecute them. Um, but if you take them away, suddenly this community is all out of whack. You might get an explosion of herbivores, herbivores going places they never went before, eating, you know, so much of a certain plant that those bees go extinct. You know, the system changes dramatically. Um, It degrades. And often we as people lose some of the very valuable ecosystem services like clean water, carbon storage, um, you know, things that we rely on. So it affects not just wildlife, but also us not having predators in a, in a system. And so we do a lot of work trying to figure out how to fit them back in there. Uh, and there's a lot of issues, you know, it's, it's not as easy as just, you know, opening up a box of wolves in, <laughs> you know, and letting oh, it's them not. you don't, you don't have like, you don't have like 60 wolves just in a room somewhere. You can just throw out into the Serengeti or wherever. No, uh, I'm, uh, I'm just put wolves in the Serengeti. <laughs> no, I, okay. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yellowstone or something like that. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, yeah. one of the, one of the problems is, is some of the places I work, um, well in the States, for example, um, wolves have been eradicated for the States from most of the states apart from like Minnesota and Alaska since the early 1900s. In Africa, I work in a a number of reserves in South Africa where big carnivores like lions and and cheetah and leopard have also been eradicated for almost 100 years. And if you're an impala or a mule deer who has never seen 
a lion or a wolf before, you know, for generations in some cases. And then all of a sudden a conservationist just opens up that box of wolves, you know, like what they've lost these anti-predator behaviors. That's the connection is, is animals use these behaviors to avoid just completely getting wiped out. Right. Um, So some of the things I study are, you know, do prey animals remember how to respond to predators or how quickly do they regain the correct responses to predators after we reintroduce them? Are there certain species of animals that maybe um, have this genetic memory, like they can they can handle being with predators, new predators better? And like figuring hmm. out these kinds of things, you know, both a baseline, how do animals change their behavior to respond to predators in, you know, quote unquote, intact systems? Comparing that to systems that we're trying to rebuild by putting predators back in, understanding what behaviors are retained and which behaviors are lost, that helps us make these these conservation plans so that we can do a better job of rebuilding these ecological communities. So I'm getting more of a picture that, you know, classically when we, when we teach ecology to kids, you have that pyramid and predators are at the top. Mm-hmm. and the misconception may be that if you take off the top of a pyramid, you still have the rest of the pyramid. And I'm getting more of an idea that it's like a Jenga puzzle. And if you take predators out, the whole thing can fall over that's or it gets the, a little bit more tipsy turvy. That's the perfect analogy. I'm, I'm going to have to use that one in my own <laughs> when I talk about this. Yeah, no, it's not, you know, you can't just pull. We think about these wildlife interactions as being part of like an interaction web, like everything's connected. And I think what people don't necessarily realize is how far reaching those connections are, you know, between wolves affect bees, you know, through how they impact deer, which impact plants, which are what the bees, you know, rely on, you know, and you, you pull out one of those players and and everything is all of a sudden, you know, messed up and, and in some cases unpredictable. I think that's one thing to think about too, is we don't even really know at this point what happens. Like we don't really know at this point, the cons- all of the consequences of removing a predator from an ecosystem. And that's, you know, if you're talking to people, like trying to incentivize people to, to try and learn to live with large carnivores, to keep large, to keep protective measures on large carnivores, is we really need to have a better idea of all of the different processes and species that carnivores impact, um, because you know they're such valuable players in these communities. I think that's so cool that you are also studying that when you introduce a predator to an area where the prey have no memory of it, like do they remember it? Um, because they they haven't built up that predator prey response. Um, it, when you're talking, it just reminds me of tourists that come to Alberta. Like we're only a couple hours from the mountains and we have like so many tourists come to see the mountains Mm -hmm. and the wildlife, especially in Jasper is all protected. So humans to them are the humans don't mess with them. Right. Mm -hmm. But so the tourists think it's safe to go up to like a grizzly bear on the side of the road or like a moose. Right. Because they don't understand. They've never had interaction with these things before. And I was like, the moose is thousands of pounds. It's going to take your face off. Like get your camera away. Like run away. Like don't, what are you doing? Yeah. Um, So maybe that's like you reintroduce like a hyena to some out, out where you study and 
the, the prayer like, oh, oh, it's something new, whatever. We call it, it's actually, um, the, we call the phenomenon a predator pit where you put, I study this in some reserves in South Africa, um, where you put a lion back in and none of the prey animals know what to do. They're like, oh, what is this? <laughs> oh, no. And so the lion just eats everything and the prey <laughs> populations go extinct. Um, oh, which is no. obviously not ideal. You have to be ideal, so careful then. Right? You have to be so careful as an ecologist. Like that's like a huge, mm-hmm. oh my God, I never even thought of that. Yeah, it's a huh. huge problem. And we're trying to figure out like, okay, so how do we, can we teach some of these animals how to respond to lions? And then maybe they can scare the crap out of these. <laughs> people do that. Like people do train naive animals that they want to reintroduce into areas with predators. This is a big thing they do in Australia. Australia has a huge problem with invasive predators so predators that aren't natural so the prey animals don't know how to respond to these invasive predators because they've never seen they've never seen a a cat before they don't have that like they haven't evolved with cats they don't know how to respond to cats cats are out feral cats are the worst they are legitimately the worst um so researchers will spend time teaching animals to be afraid of cats that is that is something that we do so that you know when you release that bilby or that quokka back into the wild and it sees a cat, it knows that it needs to run away or else. Oh my goodness. That's crazy. You know, I, I'm just fascinated. I could talk to you for hours about your research. Um, that's so, that's so cool. One of the questions we always ask in the podcast with our guests is for a, a pet story. Do you have a pet story you could share with us or, or maybe an a crazy animal story from your time in the field? I don't know. Um, I can definitely give you, I can give you a pet story. I can tell you something that always surprises people about me, um, given that I, my work is with these like very large vertebrate mammals. Um, But to be honest, my secret animal passion is for herps, which is the name we give to the group of reptiles and amphibians. Like I am a closet herpetologist. So I study mammals. Oh, really? But like, I am all about the creepy crawly things. Um, a lot of the work, looks, awesome. I think they're so great. They're so great. Um, I used to do a lot of research on them. So a lot of the research I did before graduate school involved herps. I, uh, I studied frogs in Panama. I studied lizards in Puerto Rico. I spent a whole year living on an island catching snakes, which was amazing. Um, so which would pet- be terrifying for most people, including me. I do not like snakes. I have a lot. You did that for a year. I would last a day. Somebody's like, go catch that snake. I'd be like, peace out. See you later. I will <laughs> swim to shore. I will get off. I will, I will Tom Hanks cast away <laughs> a raft out of dental floss and get out of here. Oh man. I worked the island that I was catching the snakes on, uh, has a problem with invasive snakes. There's more snakes per square mile on that island than there are on the Amazon basin. It is not a place to go if you don't like snakes. Um, right. So no, you did not see Indiana Jones there anywhere, right? There, <laughs> no, there was not, see not one single about. Indiana Jones. No, no. Okay. Um, that's hysterical. Yeah. So, so I love herps and that's my pets at home. Like all my pets are herps. I, especially turtles. I love turtles. Uh, okay. They're cute. Okay. Um, they're cute. I'll give you that. <laughs> I have, I have four, um, turtles and tortoises so you have four i do you have four turtles uh, are they named Raphael, michelangelo <laughs> donatello and leonardo if i'd known i was going to end up with four i might have planned ahead 
They're actually all they're all named after characters from great epic works. So oh, cool. I have um, I have Ophelia from Shakespeare's Hamlet. I Aww. have uh, Ajax, who's named after a Greek hero from the Iliad. I yep. have Beleg, who this is maybe a off the wall one. Beleg is a warrior from Tolkien's Silmarillion, um, and also my favorite. And then lastly, I have a box turtle named Darth Maul because Star Wars <laughs> is also an, an epic of our time. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Oh, the prequel The prequel people are going to love you. <laughs> uh, the, I, Darth Maul was the only good part of the prequels. That's my, oh, no. <laughs> my stance. Darth Maul kicked butt. I love Darth Maul. Um, yeah. So those, those are my pets. Those are my four, my four turtles and tortoises uh, back That's home. That's amazing. I think they're great. I love them. Uh, I love it. Thanks for sharing your pet story. That's great. <laughs> um, one of the things we always ask our guests also is for a super fact. A super fact is something that you know that when you tell people, it kind of like kind of like wrecks part of their brain because it's so crazy. Um, and I don't know, like every time I have guests on, it's like 20,000 super facts have already happened before this point. But do you, do you, did you save one back for a super fact for us? Oh, I've got so many... I'm a collector of strange facts, and I've got so oh, many I love things it. that I could tell you, you right now. You don't have to do just one. If you've oh. got like five, go for it. Okay, I'm going to give you one super fact, and then I'm going to give you one super fact, which is also a sneaky incentive to lure people into helping me with my citizen science camera trapping projects. How about that? Sounds good. Um, so, okay, so I study, I study large African carnivores, um, and I'm interested in how they hunt their prey. And I think one of the carnivores that's, in terms of like the um, adaptations that they have to hunt prey, that is the most absolutely fascinating and bizarre is the cheetah. And so you probably know that they're incredibly fast. You know, they can go to like zero to 60 in three strides. They have, you know, a very aerodynamic body shape. Their feet anatomy is actually more dog-like than cat-like to help them run. Uh, Big lungs, big hearts, extra power, rudder-like tails. But I think the absolutely best cheetah hunting adaptation is that they have these super specialized spines. They're extra flexible spines that curve with each stride, and they sort of act like a spring for the back legs. And so one researcher once figured out, and like, don't try this at home, but if you you cut all the legs off a cheetah, a cheetah could still move at six miles an hour powered solely by the undulations of its spine because the spine is so flexible and so powerful and is so important in their forward propulsion what, it would just like worm after stuff legs yes it would yeah exactly it would do like the worm like the 1980s dance move like the uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. oh that's, that's terrifying <laughs> i feel bad for the impala you know having a snack in the bush and all of a sudden it looks up and there's a a cheetah wiggling towards it, but wiggling towards it at a very decent speed. Um, yeah, that is decent. I think that that's that's such a funny, like, uh, funny it's that that crazy. can happen. This is crazy. They're built that way. Hey, like the oh, that's insane. They're so good at what they do. Um, so that's one of my fun facts. And then um, the other fact that I wanted to share, I think I just sort of, if I can do like a, a two second backstory. Um, I talked about the camera trapping work I do, the 200 cameras we have in Serengeti Park. I also run a lot of camera trapping projects 
all over Africa. I work in all these different ecosystems with camera traps, trying to study predator-prey interactions. And so I've ended up with like a couple thousand camera traps. Uh, camera traps take photos 24 seven. Um, so a couple <laughs> thousand photos is a couple million pictures. Um, and like as one researcher, it's impossible for me to go through a million photographs. Like I can't just go to a camera, take out the SD card. And like that data isn't in a form that I can use to run all of my analyses and do my statistics and, and make the discoveries I need to do. I need to take that photo. I need to figure out what's in that photo. Like it's a zebra, how many zebra there are, what they're doing. And if I had to look at a million photographs, I've calculated this, you know, if I had to spend 20 seconds looking at each photograph, figuring out what was in it, um, you know, doing that eight hours a day, seven days a week, it would take me 99 weeks to go through a million pictures. <laughs> and that's, you know, like that's nothing, you know, that's a fraction of the volume of images that we have um, coming into our different projects. And these, this data is so vital for science. It's so vital for conservation. But we have this huge bottleneck that is extracting all of this valuable data from the images. And so what we do um, is we put all of this data online. We crowdsource our classifications. So people at home who are interested in being part of science and doing real authentic science can go to some of our citizen science websites. So citizen science is just people, members of the public who want to help out in science. Um, you don't need any experience. You don't need any background in science or nature or wildlife biology. You can go to our websites like uh, snapshotserengeti.org or wildcamgorongosa.org. And all my camera trap photos are there. And you can help me figure out what's in those photos by classifying them online. But so this is this is a setup. Um, so this, <laughs> it's a setup. <laughs> this, is a set, this is a setup for my, my next super fact. Um, so I often don't get to look at a lot of these images myself because I have the help of all of these people, these wonderful people who help me classify my data. Uh, but the, the cool thing about that is that the people like the citizen scientists, the you know, anyone who is interested in science who goes and looks at my images gets this first glance at the secret lives of animals that, you know, data that no one has ever seen before about wildlife. Um, and someone was on our website, our Snapshot Serengeti is what we call our project, snapshotserengeti.org, um, going through our images and you can hashtag cool things you see in the images. And I started to notice that a lot of our volunteers were finding pictures of a very interesting behavioral interaction that no one had ever seen before. And we actually wrote up a science paper about it. Um, but this interaction is focused on a species of birds, uh, a species of bird in the Serengeti called an oxpecker. And these are birds um, that will go and they pick ticks and bugs off of the backs of large mammals um, and they eat these bugs. They have this mutualistic relationship with large herbivores. But what we were discovering is that instead of like a normal everyday bird going to roost in a tree at night, these oxpeckers were actually spending their nights hanging out in the armpits of giraffes. So instead of going to find a normal tree, they were hanging out on these like moving, warm, living host tree things, um, giraffes. And that's where they would spend the night is inside giraffe armpits. And then they'd wake up the next morning and they'd already be on their host, you know, the host couldn't wander away at night. 
Um, they'd just be there. And our citizen scientists helped us make this amazing, bizarre discovery about this weird interaction between birds and giraffes. Thanks for sharing that. That's a great kind of lead up. And people can go on the show notes to this podcast and I'll have links to all of your citizen science um, initiatives. And then maybe we can get some people signed up to help you look through pictures and help out there. I know there's a bunch of educators that listen to the podcast and this is something that your kids can do. Um, your science kids can do and get really get involved with if they're home and having to do online learning. And we also have, so not only is it like a very amazing, authentic science experience for, you know, curious kids, or maybe you've got like your mom and dad is, is stuck at home and they're driving you nuts. You know, you can give them something to do with a purpose. But for those educators, we also do have online labs and interactive multimedia and videos. And the researchers who work on the projects, researchers like me, we are very keen to have these one-on-one -on -one interactions with the people who are helping us out. Um, so we're happy to chat to classrooms or kids or answer questions, um, do videos. Like we want people to realize how accessible science is to take part in our science and to really get a feel that, you know, who the kinds of people are doing the science are just like you, you know, I, I'm being a scientist isn't anything impossible to become um, so we're really trying to generate those, you know, connections and bring people into science and, and let people have an amazing science experience and to facilitate that in any way that we can. Oh, that's awesome. I so hope people get involved. I'm excited. I might get involved myself. Um, yeah. That's I, it's just so inspiring. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thanks so, thanks so much. So sadly, we're at the end of our time together. I, I swear we could talk. I could... I have a million more questions. I could just listen to you talk about stories about your, your research for hours, but um, sadly, neither of us have that kind of time. <laughs> um, where can people find you on social media? Yeah, so I post um, about my research. I post camera trap pictures and videos, uh, stories from the field you can find on my Twitter, which is uh, at Song of Dodo, uh, which is the name of one of my favorite science books running up, uh, growing up, The Song of the Dodo. So on Twitter, mm -hmm. at Song of Dodo, I have an Instagram, again, for really cool camera trap pictures and sort of behind the scenes uh, footage from the field from the times I'm in Africa. And that is carnivores underscore and underscore camera traps. So carnivores and camera traps on Instagram as well. Very cool. I'll make sure also those links are in the show notes in the podcast. Oh, super. People should feel free to ask me about about, you know, anything to reach out on social media <laughs> and ask me questions about the research or being in the field or being a scientist. You know, we're super happy to, to have that continue this conversation. Well, thank you so much for agreeing to take time to talk to us today um, on the Science Podcast. It's been a, just an amazing chat, very informative and inspiring. Yeah, no, thank you. It's time for Woo or Wow. And on podcast today, as my guest host, I have Christina Georgeson. How are you doing, Christina? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Good. And you teach with me at Lindsay Thurber. Well, you did teach with me until COVID happened. You've been teaching from home. Very true. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> what What do you teach at Thurber? Um, this year, I'm teaching science, primarily grade 9, grade 10 honors, and the bio 20, bio 30 um, subjects, uh, and the 20s and the IB stream. Right. So you're, you're one of our, I'd say what you definitely, you're one of our biology experts. 
Yes. <laughs> Which I'm is an air- hesitant to say that because I don't know which questions are coming. <laughs> <laughs> um, you're never prepared ahead of time, and I try and make sure. Though this one might, this one might line up. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> and you have a little girl named Amelia. Uh, is she two? Yeah, she turned two at the end of March, and with that came like all kinds of personality, which is awesome. But testing at sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Is she a climber? Uh, she didn't used to have like any guts at all. But this last little while, maybe just being home with COVID, she suddenly like developed this fearless attitude towards everything. It's a whole new world. <laughs> that's that's what happened with um, my oldest son, Duncan, is that when he turned about two, uh, he turned into a climber. And he would cl- like you had to watch him or he'd be like on top of like the tallest things in our house. And it was just so stressful all the time. <laughs> I can imagine. Amelia right now is just into like going up and down the stairs in the weirdest ways you can imagine. I don't really know why. Like uh, like down on her front, down on her back, down on her bunt, going back, like crawling down the stairs backwards, that kind of stuff. Exactly. Yep. Oh, that's cute. <laughs> well, okay. Are you ready for woo or wow? Yes. So I'm going to read three statements. Two of them are not true. They are fake. And only one statement is true. So you have to find the true statement among the weeds. Okay. And the category this week is lions. Oh, cool. Right. Have uh, does did you have you watched The Lion King with Amelia yet, or is that kind of too spooky, scary? No, she likes it a lot, actually. Yeah. Have you seen the live action one? I've heard it's not maybe as good. I have not seen it. No. It's going to be hard for me to wrap my head around somebody else being the voice of Zazu because I loved him um, in the original Lion King. Yes, he's he's actually a pretty cute character. I like him a lot. <laughs> so the reason, again, we are having lions as the category is Dr. Meredith Palmer was the guest this week and she talked to us about the prey response of animals in Africa and especially about their interactions with lions. So that's the tie-in. Okay, cool. Okay, ready? Here we go. Here's the first statement. A lion's pupils are slits like a domestic house cat. This allows them to have enhanced focus for catching prey. But do you have an idea about that one already? I think it's true. Okay, so that means, well, (laughs) we never know. We'll see what the other statements are. (laughs) Okay, yeah, you never want to jump the gun too early in the (laughs) wow. Okay, here's the second statement. In the jungle, the mighty jungle, the lion sleeps tonight, and other phrases like king of the jungle are technically correct because the first explorers to Africa did find lions in the jungles. Okay. Okay. Ready for the last statement? Yeah. Lions have either the most or the most complex method of communication of any of the cats. Okay. Do you want me to recap? No, I think I know which one. Well, I... I'm going to say that the jungle statement is the false statement. Right. Okay. So remember, there's two false statements and one true one. Oh, okay. Uh, Okay. So that one is false. Mm. (laughs) Shoot. This is trickier than I thought. So you had the pupil statement, you had the jungle statement, and then the last one was the complexity. I'm going to go that the complexity statement was the true statement. The lions have the most complex method of communication. Out of the cats, yeah. Out of the cats. Okay, so you're going to go with that as the true statement. Final answer? Final answer. Okay. All right, so let's take a look at the second statement, the the jungle and lion. 
That statement is false. That one is definitely false. Lions do not live in the jungles. And wherever that came from, it was probably because explorers found other cats in the jungle and just mistook them for lions. Um, but lions do not live in jungles. And, you know, leopards do, jaguars do, tigers do. Um, but I don't, tigers don't even live in, in Africa. So, no. <laughs> okay. So you got that one. So that leaves us with two statements left. Oh, and I uh, changed my mind. So let's. You did. Yeah. We'll see if that, we'll see if that was a mistake. The first statement was about the lion's pupils. You said that one was not true. So that statement is not true. That means you're correct. The last statement was the true <laughs> statement. Good job. I got lucky, I think. <laughs> uh, a lion's pupils are round. They have round, large pupils. Um, and that's because they hunt large game. The evolution uh, beneficiary of having like the slit eyes is to have enhanced focus for small prey. The big round pupils let the lions hunt at night or dusk. And that's when they mostly hunt. That makes total sense. Yeah, I didn't know that before. I, oh. I, have, I would hope if I ever came across a line, I'm not looking too intently into its eyes. You um, make yourself look small? <laughs> I don't know if that would be helpful. <laughs> I don't know. And it is true. The lions have either the most or among the most complex method of communication. They roar, grunt, moan, growl, snarl, meow, purr, hum, puff, and woof like a dog sometimes. That's and so cool. Yeah, it's crazy. So good job. You won more wow. Woohoo. <laughs> so I think I think Thurber teachers have done pretty good. I think only Sylvie and Graham have got them wrong so far. That's such a cool idea. I like it a lot. <laughs> okay. I'll talk to you later. Take care today. Yeah, sorry for messing up the uh true false. I even wrote down on a piece of paper. It's the true <laughs> one I had to point. I'm such an idiot. <laughs> have a really good day. All right, it's time for story time with me. I know it's been a while, but it's time for story time because we haven't done it in a long time, you know? Haha, <laughs> time. Uh, anyway, we're going to talk about stories that happened within the time of relevance, like the past week or two weeks or something like that. And we're going to have a grand old fun time, all right? So, does anyone have any stories? I do. We are practicing physical distancing and um, our medical officer Dr. Dina Hinshaw said that what you can do is you can um, as long as you are physical distancing with two meters you can have family members from a different house come over as long as you're you're maintaining that distance. So um, we had my niece and her kids over and it was super fun wasn't it Adam? Yeah it was very fun. Yeah anyway um, the little girl, her name is Ellie, and I said, hey, would you like to go for a creek walk? And she said, oh, yes. Now, Jason had already left with the dog, and they were far out there. And I got her some boots, and away we went. And we had a lot of fun walking, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Bunsen comes racing over. I was like, hey, buddy, how's it going, puppy puppy? And he was just so happy. And then Jason came over the crest of the hill, and he said, oh, that's what Bunsen's doing. He must have heard you because he took off like a rocket. So then we were all together. Ellie was just really, really happy to be walking in the creek. Jason said, hey, we can cross over here. And Ellie said, I can cross over here. Promptly fell into to the creek. 
It's like whenever Ellie says, I can do something, she immediately falls over right now, right after. Yeah. Anyway, so that happened. Bunsen just looked over and said, hmm, what happened? And he carried on his way. He was roaring around and it was so muddy. He is so, his paws are so muddy. What did you say about his feet, Adam? So what I like to say is that Bunsen, you know how he has the black and then it goes into brown and then it goes into white. I like to say it's just brown all the way down, you know? Very cool. Uh, it wasn't cool on the floor. We had uh, some major cleaning to do. Anyway, are there any other stories that you'd like to tell, Dad? If you've been following Bunsen on Twitter, you've seen the amount of freaking moose legs he's found. It has been, I can't believe it's been happening. He's found, since the thaw, two moose legs and a deer leg. And he can smell them, and he goes and gets them and hauls them uh, around and then he takes them away from me where I can't get them in the because we still have snow up on the banks and uh, when he found them he went out into the snow where it was so soft and I didn't have my snowshoes on because most of it's melted and I can't get them and then once I finally tracked him down and took it away from him because he gives it to me he's not happy about it then I had to carry two frozen moose legs all the way back and throw them in the compost so our compost if I had kept all the moose legs that Bunsen has found because some of them are gone now. I threw them in the big garbage bin we have. That would be six moose legs and two deer leg. Super crazy. Actually, one day I had gone for a walk with Bunsen and we headed west instead of the usual east. And he was acting really bizarre. And he wasn't, he was like on point and he was sniffing. And I thought, what is going on? And I said, come on, puppy, puppy, let's go home. And so we did. Uh, But then when Jason took him for a walk later, he just took off like a rocket west and came back with moose legs. legs. (laughs) Pretty gross. All right. I guess it's time for my story. All right. So my story is a bit different than mom's and dad's story. It happens inside. That's basically all of my stories. They all happen inside where we're, you know, just chilling. So you're going to need a little backstory to know my story. So after a walk, Bunsen usually gets really tired. He drinks a lot of water and then he just <laughs> lays down. He drinks so much water. And he's so loud when he drinks. <laughs> you might have been hearing him earlier. He was like, he was, he was going, <laughs> you know, like if you grab an image of a dog drinking water, you can basically hear it. He drinks a lot of water and then he lays down. You know, dad likes to sometimes try to cuddle with him, but it doesn't work. He just stands right up. But what I do instead is I like grab him and I basically throw him across the room and then I just lay down with him. And he's perfectly fine with me doing that. He's, I don't know. He doesn't like other people pushing him around. But when I like throw him across the room, he's like, ah, it's Adam time. <laughs> He'll cuddle with me, but he likes cuddling with you more on the floor. Yeah. Uh, no. What happens, Jason, is you're, you're so put out when Bunsen doesn't. Um, when you lay down and Bunsen's like, nope, getting out of here. And he gets up and he goes away and you're like, oh, you're it's like, sad. you're sad. You want to cuddle with him sometimes on the floor. The- I know, but sometimes he doesn't. All right. That's been story time for this week. Hopefully we get to talk again later. But if not, see you next time, I guess. Bye-bye. Hey, thanks for coming back time after time to listen to the podcast. We're sadly at the end. Uh, Thanks so much for listening. And special thanks to our top-tier patrons on Patreon. Because of their support, they get a shout-out at the end of the podcast. So, here they are. Andrea Persons, Bianca Hyde, Brooke Lavallo, Daniel Fry, Elizabeth Bourgeois, Judith Morton, Karen Beth St. George, Catherine Lynch, Kathleen Zerker, Mary Coos, 
Marianne McNally, Ben Rathert, Liz Button, and Rebecca Rutherford. Thanks, guys. We've been having a lot of fun on the Patreon page talking about the new merch slogans on the Bunsen t-shirts and hoodies and things like that. It's been a lot of fun. Also, special thanks to our expert guest, Dr. Meredith Palmer. No, she's not from the office. <laughs> the behavioral ecologist to talk to us about prey response. What a, what a fun chat. All right, we'll see you guys next week. Let's end with Bunsen's motto for science, empathy, and cuteness.